Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Well, this morning we're going to continue in our series um, called Covenant and Kingdom. In this Covenant and Kingdom series, uh, we've been talking about the covenant side of our relationship with God, how God has come, he's made himself known to us, he's revealed himself to us, and that he's made a promise to us that he would create a nation of his people on this earth that would be both priests and, um, yeah, that would be a priest to the nations, and that would bring kind of his kingdom into fruition. Um, And this kingdom piece is this place where peace would come, where hope would come, where conflict would cease, where uh, the dead would come to life again. And so we have this place where throughout the Bible we see this theme of both covenant, where God is in deep relationship with us, but then we also have this part of kingdom where God is moving through this world in power, and he's going to fulfill his will whether we want to be a part of it or not. And the cool thing is that this covenant piece is that he's always inviting us into this place where he is moving, and he wants us to go with him where he is going. And so the last two weeks we looked at kind of the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and the promise of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And then last week we looked at the story of Joseph and how God used Joseph to advance God's kingdom um, with power through his both humility um, and also just faithfulness um, and integrity, how his character was built with integrity and humility and all things that he did that God used him where he was um, to fulfill the plan that God had for him through this dream that he would help the nation of Egypt um, survive the famine. And so that's kind of the kingdom piece. And today we're going to look at this place where covenant and kingdom come together in one place. And so we're in this season of Advent. We're in the season where we are anticipating kind of this covenant and kingdom of Jesus. So Jesus comes and he invites us into relationship, and that's the covenant. He invites us through the new covenant of the cross, through the, his death and through the blood of his sacrificed body and the way his body is broken on the cross. And so we celebrate that in communion, this new covenant, this new relationship that he's promised. And he's saying that someday I'm coming back again, someday soon. And so in many ways, Advent is this anticipation of the second coming of Christ. Sure, we look forward to it in the sense that we're celebrating the birth of Christ, but in many ways we find ourselves in this season of Advent always of kind of longing and praying, come Lord Jesus, come. Let your hope come to this earth. Let your peace come to this earth. Let your love come to this earth and let your joy come to this earth. And this is all about God's kingdom coming. And so we wait in anticipation for the fulfillment of all of that. And today what I want to look at is kind of an Advent story inside the Bible that's inside the Old Testament where we have a group of people who are waiting for God's relationship and kingdom to come to fulfillment in their lives. And this story starts with the Israelites. The Israelites end up in slavery because they moved to Egypt because of Joseph, and they grew in number so great that the Egyptians began to feel threatened. And the new Pharaoh comes into power. Joseph is forgotten, and the people of Israel end up enslaved by Egypt because of fear that they're going to become too great and overcome Egypt and become their own nation. And so the way Egypt responds to this, of course, is out of fear 
and they're out of power, and they choose to implement an incredible system of oppression on the Israelite people. And so they go into 400 years of intense slavery. And this is God's people. This is God's people that God said, I would make you a great nation. And here they are, kind of the opposite of a great nation. They're this nation that's oppressed, this nation that is suffering, this nation that wonders, when is God going to make good on his promise? When is God going to make us a great nation again? And I would say at the end of this, there's almost little hope that God is actually going to come through and fulfill his promise. Things are starting to look pretty bleak. And so here this nation of Israel is in a season of Advent. They're in the season of anticipation and they're in the season of waiting. And so this morning we're going to look at this Advent story, the story of Moses, the story of Israel, the story of Egypt, and the story of God moving through all of that. And so, of course, the story begins with a guy named Moses. Moses is born into Egypt at this time where the Hebrew people are growing exponentially, growing so much that the oppression that Egypt has put on them is not enough to hold them down. They need to put in new systems of oppression to prevent Egypt, to prevent Israel from overthrowing Egypt. And so what they do is they say, hey, for a season, we're going to kill every male boy that's born just so we can curb the population, especially the strength in men. And so this is the season that Moses is born in. Whenever an Israelite woman was to give birth, the midwives were to report it, and they would go and they'd take the children and they'd kill the children. Horrific time to live in. But Moses, by God's grace and by the cunningness of his mother, is hidden out in this basket. His mom leaves this basket and she puts him in the Nile River. And as Pharaoh's daughter just so happens to be bathing. She comes across this basket and she finds this Hebrew boy and she's completely enamored by him. She's just completely taken by this boy. So much so that she takes him back to her father and she says, Dad, can he be mine? Like, can I have him? You know, I almost think of this like little girl with a puppy. You know, like, can I have it? But it's this baby in a basket. And he's probably like, you know nothing about raising a child. But she's like, but please, can I have it? And so Pharaoh lets her keep Moses. And so Moses is saved through this house of Pharaoh, through kind of the enemy. And Moses grows up in the courts. He grows up as a prince of Egypt. But as Moses continues to grow up, he begins to look around and he begins to realize that like, he's not the same as everyone else that's around him. He kind of notice that he's a little bit different. He begins to realize kind of the dissonance between him being a prince of Egypt, and that his bloodline, his people, are constantly being oppressed and dying. And there's one day that Moses is out and about, and he's walking around, and he sees an Egyptian just beating a Hebrew slave. And Moses says, I've had enough. And he turns on the Egyptian soldier, and he kills him. And Moses, he's probably thinking that the Hebrew is going to thank him in some way. But instead, the Hebrew condemns him. and He says, who are you to judge between us? Are you going to kill me too? And so now Moses is a condemned man. Moses is a man that's condemned by his own people. And he's also a man that's condemned by Egypt. He knows that he can't go back to the prince. He knows, I mean, back to the palace. He knows that he cannot sit in this role of prince. He knows that word is going to get back to Pharaoh, that this prince of Egypt has killed one of his own 
members, one of his own clan, and that, that's not going to end well for him. And so immediately he begins to flee, and he flees out towards the desert. This is where Moses goes. And so in an instant, in a moment, Moses goes from a man of incredible privilege, power, and status to a man who has nothing and who is a fugitive on the run in the desert. He has no privilege. He has no power. He has no protection. He has no food. He has no place to call home. He loses it all in a moment. And so he goes searching in the desert to try and find those things. He loses his identity. And it's here in the desert where he meets a woman. And this woman becomes his wife. And through his wife, he finds a job. And that's why being a shepherd for his father-in-law that just kind of roams in the middle of the desert. And so this is Moses' new role and his new job. He was prince of Egypt, and now he's a shepherd wandering around the desert, taking care of sheep. And he does this for 40 years. And honestly, if you think about it, Moses is probably like, this is where I'm just going to live, breathe, and die. He might be reflecting on his past life of like, man, God saved me through Pharaoh's family, but I can't go back now. I don't understand what all of that was about. He might have even questioned, why did God even let me live in the first place? It would have been better if I was just murdered with all the other Hebrew babies. I mean, who can imagine these kind of conversations that Moses probably had with himself and with God in this 40 years of just like wandering around in the desert? And it says that Moses took his sheep to the far side of the desert. And there's kind of this application point in the middle of this desert, in the middle of this place where Moses finds himself. And that's that Moses embraces the desert that he finds himself in. Sure, he's dealing with kind of what you'd call the natural consequences of his actions. But in many places, he doesn't try and run to comfort. He doesn't try to ignore the pain. He doesn't try and like bandage it over. Instead, he goes deep into the desert and he makes the desert his home. And he makes the desert kind of his livelihood, and it's the place where he probably doesn't imagine that God is going to ever bring him out of. And I think that if we take it too far like Moses, if we make the desert our home, we could end up wallowing in it. But I think that there are places in our lives where we are called into this place of desert, this place where everything that is comfortable, everything that we would imagine is right and good with the world is kind of taken away from us. And it's a hard place to be. But I think there is some wisdom in Moses about embracing it, about welcoming it. Because it's also in the desert where we're most able to hear from God, where we're most able to see our need for God. Because when we're in the palace, when we're privileged, when we have all of our needs met, there's really not much like need or force to say, hey, I really need God. Because I've got it all. Everything is good. But man, when everything's taken away, there's kind of this, like, I need to depend on something else, and I don't know what that is. And that, that place forces us to seek out God in ways that we might never elsewise seek him. I mean, any, anyone know what I'm talking about here? Anyone been in the desert? There's just something about the desert that makes us cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come, which is this kind of Advent prayer that says, I need you to bring peace where there isn't peace. I need you to bring hope where there isn't hope. I need you to bring joy where there isn't joy. I need you to bring love 
where there's been rejection and isolation. And so Moses is in this place of the desert, and this is where God meets him. It says he's in the far side of the desert, so he's in it deep. He's in the deep part of the desert, and this is where God breaks in. So one day, 40 years after his escape, I mean, that's a long time. I'm not even close to 40. Like, I've still got like 12 years of 40. And so I, I, just, I can't even like wrap my mind around what that is, you know, to be like, to do something mon- that monotonous also, my word, <laughs> for 40 years. But here Moses is, in the, and so God meets him in the desert through this bush that's burning. Now, if you're Moses, you're in the desert, it's hot. You look up, you see this bush that's burning. You're thinking, what is going on? Like, am I, am I hallucinating? Like, am I seeing this right? Because the heat can get to you. But he's like, no, I think, I think it's burning. And so he, he walks over to the bush. And from this place of this bush that's burning but not being burnt up. Like it's just burning but not being consumed by this fire. He's like, I don't, you don't see that every day. I'm going to go check this out. So he shows up. And as he shows up, God speaks to him. And he says to this, he says, Moses, Moses. So not only does this bush burn, but it also begins to speak. Moses says, here am I. And God says to them, do not come near, take off your sandals, for this place that you're standing is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you see, this is covenant language. God is saying, I am your father. I'm your father's father which implies that I am also your father. I'm your dad. And I'm here to take care of you as I have taken care of your previous fathers. He's saying, I know things are rough. I know things are not how you imagined it. But I see you and I hear you and I'm near and I'm your dad and I've got some plans for you. And from this place, Moses hides his face for he was afraid to look at God. And I think that this is an identity question for Moses. Moses is confronted by his father. And I feel like in his way that he like looks away, there's kind of this like shame of like, but, but dad, I didn't measure up. I didn't meet your expectations. You saved me out of the hands of Pharaoh. You put me in this high place of status. And now I hear him shepherding. And God's like, it's all right. It's all right. I love you. I'm your father. Your identity needs to be found in me not in anything that you've done or accomplished or will achieve, but it needs to be found in the fact that I am your father and that I'm your father's father and that I love you and I've made a name for you. And so there's hope there. There's joy there. And then the Lord says, I've got something else for you, Moses. I don't even, I don't have just an identity and just a name for you, but I have work for you to do. He says this, it says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land that's flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Prezites, the Vittites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them with. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You guys hear that shift in language? That shift in language, it begins with covenant, and then he makes the shift about 
this kingdom, about this nation, about this nation of Israel to go and to take this new land and to come out of Egypt and out of the oppression that God is going to do this. And he says, the reason why I'm doing this is because of the promise that I made with you and your forefathers, that I would protect them and that I would make them a great nation. And I am going to come good on my promise, but I'm going to do it through you, Moses. And immediately Moses says this to God. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? Moses is essentially saying, God, who am I? You got the wrong guy. I appreciate that you're calling me father. I appreciate that you're welcoming me into your relationship. I even appreciate that you want to set my people free out of Egypt. Like, I'm down with that plan. I'm good with that. But you want me to do it? Who am I to do this? I'm just a lowly shepherd, a fugitive out of the run. I'd imagine, he doesn't bring it up in the scripture, but I imagine he's thinking like, don't you know what I've done? I can't go back there. But instead, he makes these excuses about how he can't talk, about how he's not a good leader, and he's like, guess what? I know your brother Aaron. I'm, I've already sent him. He's coming, and he's going to speak on your behalf. And you and him, you guys are going to tag team this, and you guys are going to set my people free. The reality is, is that Moses wanted to stay in the comfort of the covenant instead of being pushed by God into the plans and the realities of God's kingdom that he wanted to live through Moses, through kind of the kingdom mission that God had put on Moses' life. And I think that we're like Moses in many ways. In many ways, we love the covenant. We love that God has called us father, that God has called us son and daughter. We love that God has given us his son, Jesus, to die for us and to, to create peace with God the Father. We love focusing on this fathership an identity relationship that is full of covenant and richness and goodness. But oftentimes, we just want to chill there. We just say, thank God Jesus came. Thank God Jesus is coming again. It's all good. Let it just be love and happiness. And we're just going to sit here and wait in anticipation and see what God does next. And we get comfortable. And the moment that God says, actually, I want you to go do something. I want you to go and bring part of this kingdom, part of this peace and hope and joy and love into this world. We're like, uh, uh, are you sure, God? I think you got the wrong guy. I think you got the wrong guy. I'm good with you bringing peace, love, and joy and hope into this world. I'm just not sure that you, that you want me to do it. And God is like, yes. I absolutely want you to do it. I want you to be a part of this kingdom. And I want you to lead your, my people in this movement towards me and to transform the world. This is what we get in Moses. And so Moses agrees. After much conversation and deliberation with God, he agrees to go do it. And so he heads in to Egypt and he marches up to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And of course, Pharaoh's like, ha, no, no, that's not happening. And Moses is like, all right, well, I'm here to tell you that there's going to be some plagues coming that's going to plague the land until you begin to let my people go. And so one by one, these plagues start breaking in to the reality of Egypt. And at first, Egypt's like, it's all right. We can do the same thing. We can manifest the same type of plague 
that this God is doing. But then it comes to the place where they can't continue to replicate the same plagues. What's happening through the plagues of Egypt and the ten different plagues is that God is kind of at war with the gods of Egypt. And every plague that our God brings onto Egypt is kind of a message to the people of Egypt of who's actually in charge, of which God is actually in ultimate authority over that space and that place. And so if you were to dig in deep, you'd be able to see this correlation between how God brings a plague and how that brings one of the Egyptian gods very, very low. But what's more important than all of that is where is God bringing his kingdom into this? Why is he doing this? Because what he's doing is he's establishing his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom reigns here in Egypt. But I think the bigger question is why? Why would God go through the trouble of bringing all of these plagues? Why would God go through the trouble of this kind of God-to-God battle showdown in Egypt for his people? And the reality is that it's because of the covenant. It's because of the promise that he made with the people and the fact that he said that you are my people and I'll be your God and I'll protect you and I will love you and I will deliver you. You see, the kingdom of God always comes from a place of covenant. The kingdom of God always breaks through from a place of deep, deep relationship. And I think that this is often a test that we can put to our kind of like own kingdom work in our own lives. Because God has called us to do kingdom work. He's called us to go do. He's called us to bring love, joy, peace, and hope into this world. Right? We all know this. But the question is, is oftentimes, why do we do it? I think sometimes we do it because we just want to make God happy. We feel like, well, God called us to do it, so we're just going to do it. And we're going to try and do this out of obedience. And that If we do this enough and if we do this right, then maybe that'll make God happy. And if God's happy with us, then maybe he'll bless us. And maybe I won't ever have to experience the desert and things will be nice and comfy and cozy. Sometimes we do kingdom work because we want it to be about us. I mean, how would this look if God came to Moses and was like, hey man, I want you to go set your people free. And he's like, yes, today is the day. I've been waiting 40 years since I've killed the Egyptian. Let's go do it. And he's like strapping on his swords and he's like ready to go. He's like, let's lay waste to the Egyptians. I mean, you could see that from Moses, right? I mean, that could be a, a, a possible response. And sometimes that's us. Sometimes we make the kingdom work that God has called us to do about us and about our agenda and our motivations. But we have this incredible test, and that is the covenant. This covenant that God has made with the earth and made with his people. And we get to ask ourselves, why am I doing the work that I'm doing? Is it because of this insecurity and trying to make God happy? Is it because it's about me, and it might make me great? Or is it about relationship and the hope that God has for his people and the love that God has for his people? And I think that that can be kind of our heart check. And I think that's the check that Moses runs into while God is executing his kingdom onto the people. And so God sends these plagues, these nine plagues, and then we get to the tenth plague. And the tenth plague looks again like covenant. He tells the people of Israel, 
sacrifice, a lamb that is one year old, take the blood, put it on your door frame, and the angel of death is going to come and visit Egypt, but if you've got the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, I'm going to pass over. And this is where we get the story of Passover. And God passes over those houses, and he saves those children while the children of Egypt dies. And it's in this place of covenant that God again protects his people, loves his people, but it's also where his kingdom breaks through and he sets them free. It's this plague that gets them out of Egypt. And so they wake up the next morning, Pharaoh's like, Moses, go and take your people, get out of here. Let's go. And so Moses, he rallies the people and they head off, guess where? To the desert. They head towards the desert, and they're running for their lives. And when they're in the middle of the desert, they run into something that's kind of surprising and shocking, something that's often not in the desert, but this really big sea called the Red Sea. Now, the sea is a place of mystery. It's a place of terror. It's a place where oftentimes even the greatest gods of earth could not tame the sea. And so the people of Israel hit the sea, and they're terrified. They're like, Moses, what are you doing leading us out into the desert so we could die? And while they're waiting at the sea, trying to figure out what to do, who's coming behind them? The armies of Egypt. Egypt's like, we made a terrible mistake. We should have never let those people go. We're going to go get them and bring them back. And so here, Israel is between the sea and the army of Egypt, and they're terrified. And they're yelling at Moses, blaming him for everything, that they're in the desert, that they're going to die, that there's no hope. And what does Moses do? What does Moses do in this space? He seeks God, and he goes to the people with confidence. And this is what Moses says to the people. Moses is completely transformed at this moment. He says this, he says, Fear not, and stand firm, and see that the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see, to see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. A lot different kind of version of Moses than we got at the burning bush, right? The burning bush, God says, hey, I've got, I've got work for you to do. Uh, and he's like, no, not the right guy. Um, uh, can't talk. Here, in the middle of crisis, Moses turns to his people and he's like, shut up and watch God work. And he turns around and he plants his staff and the waters part and God's kingdom breaks through and rules over the sea as a testimony to the people of Israel and the, and the people of Egypt that he is the God, that he is the king of this earth. So the people of Israel march through and as soon as the last Israelite is through and the armies of Egypt are in the middle of the sea, God closes it and the armies of Egypt are swallowed by the sea. Now the question is, where does Moses get this confidence from? How does Moses transform from this kind of wishy-washy of a man to this man that's able to command the sea and command the people of Israel? Well, it comes from this place of covenant. It comes from this place of strong identity that he is God's son, that he is a son of God, that he is loved by God, and that God is wanting to bring his kingdom through him for his people. And through the ten plagues, I feel like you just see Moses maturing and growing into this so that when the crisis comes, 
he's able to stand with assurance, not of what he can do and what power he possesses, but what God can do through him. And it's amazing the transformation when you stand from a place of confidence, of covenant, trusting that the kingdom is going to work through you, that God has work to do through you for his people. And so as they come through the other side, they end up at this place that's a mountain. Now this mountain just so happens to be the same mountain that Moses was at when the burning bush came. So we're right back where we started. And at this mountain, God gives his people the law. And the law is kind of this imagination, this vision for how he wants his people to live in relationship with him. And when we read the law, we oftentimes read the law as a bunch of rules. But the hope and the heart of the law was that it was covenant, that it would create an identity for the people and that the people would see themselves as a priest to the nations. And do you know what a priest does? A priest serves and loves and brings hope, joy, love, and peace to the world. That was God's intent for the law. For all these rules that he established, it was so that they would be a people that would bring God's kingdom into the rest of the world. That was God's hope, and that was God's intent. The problem is, is that they never saw God as their father. They kind of missed that. And they always saw God as this ruler, as this king. And so what happens is, is that, that Moses comes down from the mountain, and guess what happens? The Israelites have already disobeyed. They create this golden calf, and they say this calf is actually the God that brought us out of Egypt. They've already forgotten about the covenant and about the kingdom that God has established, and they created a God in place of the God who just destroyed all the other gods that they once knew. And if we read the Bible, if we continue to read it through the entire Old Testament, we just see disappointment after disappointment of the people forgetting that God wants to love them as their father. And they continue this kind of life of disobedience, this life of rejecting God, to the place to where they're led out into this ultimate desert, this place that we call exile. And it's here in exile that they're like, oh, I think God was trying to tell us something at the mountain. They go back to the mountain, and they're like, I think God is trying to show us that he's our king, and that we need to obey him, that we should obey him strictly. And so what happens is that they then err on the other side, and they create a whole bunch of rules to protect the rules, to decide who's in and who's out, and they again miss that God's father. They get to this place to where it's not about bringing hope and life and love and joy and peace to the world, but it's actually about bringing a bunch of rules and a bunch of punishment into the world. And they miss it. And our hope through Christ is that we would see both covenant and kingdom, that God is love, that God is our Father, but that God is also king. And so, Sean, can you pull up kind of this graphic? So there's two ways that this like works out. There's one relationship around covenant that says our God is our Father. And it moves to this other quadrant that says because he's our father, we have an identity. We have an identity as his son. We have an identity as his daughter. Our identity is not found in what we can do, what we can achieve, what we can accomplish on our own, but it's given from the father. And it is good. And there's a lot of confidence that we can have in that identity. And the way we live out that identity is through obedience. And so we, we obey when God calls us to go. 
And this is kind of the proper way to see how the covenant relationship works. Many times we get it backwards also like the Israelites. We're just like the Israelites. We see God give us a bunch of commandments, a bunch of rules, and we start at obedience. And we say, well, if I do enough good things, then maybe I can build an identity that God my Father would be proud of. Because this is kind of how our relationships work in real life, right? Like we have a dad somewhere that has a bunch of expectations, and we're like, hey, if I just meet all these expectations, then maybe I would have an identity and my father would accept me and love me. And so we try and operate that way with God. And where, where does that leave us? That leaves us broken. That leaves us insecure. That leaves us full of fear. It definitely doesn't lead us to a place of hope and peace and joy and love. But the way the covenant relationships is that it begins with the Father and his love. And it trickles down to where we live in that place of identity. We allow that to be our identity. And we live out of that space into a place of obedience, where obedience just flows out of who we are because of who God is and because of the way he loves us. And so this is kind of covenant. Now I want to see how kingdom works out also because we're talking about covenant and kingdom. Now this is the kingdom relationship. The kingdom relationship is that God is king. God is king over the earth, and that is good news, and we need God to be king. But from that doesn't come an identity, but instead it comes to us that we have authority. Because God is king and because of who our identity is, because we're in a relationship with him, we have authority as his sons and daughters. And from that authority, we get to live out power. And I know that power is this kind of dangerous word. We don't like the word power. The reason why we don't like power is because we've seen a lot of power abused. Because in many ways in our world, we run the triangle backwards again. We start with power, and we say, if I just had enough power, then maybe would, people would see the authority that I have, and if people saw that I had enough authority, they would name me king someday, and I would be ruler over all of this. But the triangle works backwards. It starts at a place where God is king, and we as his people have been given authority, and we get to move in power. Sean, next slide. What we get to see here is kind of a relationship that our Father gives us an identity that moves us to obedience, and that the Father is also our King who gives us authority, who moves us in power. And what the Israelites forgot is that identity and authority go together. They go hand in hand. Because what happens next is that God said, hey, remember it said that they were going to deliver them into the land of the Hittites and all the ites, kind of the Canaanites and all these ites, the Jebusites. He's like, hey, I want you to go this land? Well, early in the story, after Sinai, they go check it out. They go check out this land. They, ten, they send 10 spies into the land. Eight out of the 10 spies come back and they say, we can't do it. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too fierce. We can't do it. And they get kind of rebuked because they're like, didn't God just deliver us from one of the greatest nations in the world? Like, why can't we go? What they've forgotten is that God is king and that God has given them authority and from that authority is given them power to conquer and to rule but instead they said they saw Cain and they're like we can't do that on our own strength they're too powerful for us they're too strong they forgot their identity they forgot the authority that they had in their identity and so they didn't obey and they're kind of cursed to the desert for another 40 years but I believe had they remembered their identity, 
had they remembered their authority, they would have been able to walk out obedience and power, and they would have taken the land 40 years earlier. And that would have been good news for the people of Israel. What often happens is that God calls us to a kingdom work that when we first look at it, we're like, we can't do that. It's too big. It's too large. It's too scary. It looks like Canaan with the giants. We're like, God, I can't do that. I can't bring peace to this world. I can't bring hope to this world. I can't bring love and joy to this world. I don't know how to do that. I think if that's our response, in some ways we're right where we need to be. Because God's like, well, I can work with that. That's where Moses was at the burning bush. He's like, who am I? Who am I to go do that? But we can't be like the Israelites and say we're not going to go. Nope, we're not doing it. We have to be like Moses who begins to accept his identity and with his identity understand that there's authority and that we walk out obedience with power and trust that God is going to break through through our obedience, that God is going to bring justice, that God is going to bring peace, that God is going to bring compassion, that someday the swords are going to be turned into plowshares, that someday the spears will turn into pruning hooks, and that someday the nations will stop plotting war against one another. We have to believe that. We have to believe that God wants to do it through us, that God wants to do it through you, and so I don't know what God's put on your heart. I don't know what God has put onto your life. I don't know what it is, this kingdom place that God is calling you to. But I know that he has plans for us to change the world in ways that we could never imagine. And if I were to take a guess, I think many of us are at this place where maybe it's like we're in the desert. And we just look at, if we were to play the reel for the rest of our life, we're just like, yeah, it looks really dry and dusty. And it looks like a bunch of sheep, and I guess this is it. But I believe that God is wanting to break through with a burning bush in your life. And that he's got something different for us, something new for us, and that's going to change the world. And that's our prayer this morning, is that we would be able to go, as we sit in anticipation, as we wait for Advent, that it wouldn't just be a season of preparation, of waiting, but it would also be a season of actively going. But instead of reflecting on hope and joy and peace and, oh God, how great would that be if that actually came true, that we would say, God, how could you use me to be love? How could you use me to be hope? How could you use me to be peace and joy to this world? How could I be the Christmas gift to the world as you are? And I think that's our prayer this morning as we think about this relationship between covenant and kingdom. You've been given an identity and we've been given responsibility. And I think the work that we have to do is to spend some time understanding our identity first, understanding who God has called us to be, and then seeking out, asking God, where do you want us to go? And God, show me and let me have faith on how to get there. And the beautiful thing is that God walks Moses through it. God shows Moses the miracles. He shows them and that he's faithful before Pharaoh. And so trust that God would be gracious also with you as you step into the unknown that he's called you to. All right? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time that we have together to study your word. 
to look at this Advent story of Moses, the way that your people waited for your kingdom to come. And God, we thank you for your servant Moses, that he embraced his identity that you gave him, and that he walked that identity out with authority and power and obedience to you. And God, we thank you that your kingdom broke through for the people of Egypt and that you set them free and that you conquered. And God, we thank you that you again gave them an identity on the mountain, an identity to be a people of priests, to go and serve and love the world and to make your name great and known around this world. And God, we thank you that you have come also through your Son and that you have given us that same identity and that same task to be priest to this world. And God, I pray that we would know our identity and that we would be confident in how it's found in you. And God, that we wouldn't just sit back and be comfortable resting in the covenant, resting in anticipation, but God, that we'd be active participants in your kingdom and that you'd call us to move. And God, that you'd give us imaginations of what peace would look like, of what love would look like, what joy and hope would look like in any context that we live in, God. God, may you perform a miracle in our lives and may your kingdom break through through us. God, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. In your name we pray, amen. We're going to take some time to respond to God and his goodness in worship. We're going to spend some